Welcome to Aquifer. I'm host, John Bazar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Oncofarm. Uh, we've got some updates from the month of December to get to. It is January 6th when I'm recording this. Oh, this will come out tomorrow on the 7th. Feeling good? Feeling great? It's January 6th. I am day 9 post-Pfizer vaccine, and day 10 is where those curves seem to flatten out, so feeling good. A lot to get to. Uh, not, not much of it practice changing, but the FDA was busy in the month of December, so let's get, uh, let's get straight to it. Uh, on December 1st, uh, the FDA approved Pralcetinib, or brand name Gavretto, with R-E-T in the, in the brand name, uh, for RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer. Now, uh, Pralcetinib was previously approved for RET-fusion-positive non-small cell lung cancer. So this is not a new chemical entity. This is an expanded indication. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about its role in, in treating MTC or medullary thyroid cancer. Just Throughout there, uh, you might think of pralcetinib as a RET inhibitor. It's also a VEGF inhibitor, as evidenced by the fact that it uh, causes hypertension, has warnings about impaired wound healing, and uh, risk of hemorrhage. Uh, so little little pearl there to keep in mind with pralcetinib, uh, which ha- does have uh, activity against RET, both in lung cancer and uh, now medullary thyroid cancer approval. Uh, then on December 16th, we got a new drug. Uh, margituximab or margituximab. I'm not sure how that G is. Is it a, is it a J or a G? Uh, like GIF or JIF. I'm going to say it's a J, although I say it's a GIF. Uh, so mar- margituximab, uh, in conjunction with chemo, was approved for HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer after two more prior HER2 regimens. So this is based off of the SOFIA study. And if you're like me, you have a preceptor who has a daughter named SOFIA or a former preceptor. All right, so Sophia uh, was a large study, 530 patients, um, uh, and and based. This has not been published, but based on what I've seen on social media from when this was presented at the meeting, everyone had prior trastuzumab, everyone had prior pertuzumab, and everyone had prior uh, trastuzumab imtanzine or TDM1. All right, so they had all the appropriate HER2 therapy, and they're randomized one to one to margituximab plus chemo or trastuzumab plus chemo. And the chemo could have been capecitabine, eribulin, uh, gemcitabine, or venorobine, and they stratified based on the chemo choice. Now, the red flag here, when you have a single HER2 blockade arm, especially in people who have already failed multiple lines of HER2 target treatment, we have study after study showing that dual HER2 blockade, uh, trastuzumab plus pertuzumab, uh, trastuzumab plus um, lapatinib is better than trastuzumab alone, even in people who have failed trastuzumab. So we know that this dual HER2 blockade can restore some of the HER2 activity in, in this disease state. Perhaps it's a fair argument to say, well, you know, and that's with AI, that's without chemo, that's without hormonal therapy. Perhaps it's fair to say that doing that with chemo may be too toxic. Perhaps, but, you know, we've, we've got an inferior control arm, in my opinion, here, which kind of sets our study up not to take anything away from it. Um, now, the median, uh, or the primary endpoint was median progression-free survival, uh, which was 5.8 versus 4.9, favoring uh, margituximab hazard ratio uh, was uh, just snuck under, not crossing one. Uh, confidence interval did have hazard ratio was 0.76. Uh, it's kind of a stair-stepping hazard ratio. So every every three months, every time you do the scans, you see the things go down. You see the Kaplan-Meier curves decrease. And they, every time they decrease, they kind of touch for a little bit. So there's not a ton of um, space between these curves. So it's modest, maybe even minor benefit 
at best, and that would be if you had a good control arm. Now, if you did chemo plus tracing that plus lapatinib, that's probably a, a, a good comparison control arm uh, that would probably have a lot of toxicity, especially if you had the capecitabine chemo backbone, which a lot of folks wouldn't be uh, excited to randomize to. Uh, so what we kind of take away from this is this is not going to change practice, right? Um, but it does seem that, that uh, margituximab maybe is a little bit better than trastuzumab in some respects, and this is there's some theory behind this in that uh, margituximab has um, a greater affinity in the FC reception or the FC portion of the antibody for uh, the FCR receptor uh, that should lead to improved antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, which is what the PI says. And you can find that written in review articles that are based off of primary literature that has not been published that I can uh, that I can find. Um, so you know this this should not be changing uh, uh, practice. Like I don't see a reason to use this. There's no clear benefit. Um, uh, but it is worth studying more, so I'd like to see a margituximab plus pertuzumab versus trastuzumab plus pertuzumab. I mean, could margituximab overtake trastuzumab as our backbone? Way, 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 way too early to, to think that will happen, but it is certainly is worthy of discussion. It is a more meaningful question than should we use margituximab plus chemo uh, after prior lines of treatment, especially when we have several new approvals recently with, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the topoisomerase uh, inhibitor bound to antibody drug conjugate with HER2. There are other options we have in this disease state now as well. A couple things uh, about the drug. Uh, the dosing is 15 mg per kg uh, every three weeks. First dose is over two hours, and then after that, every uh, over 30 minutes if they tolerate. There are a lot more infusion reactions with this drug than trastuzumab, 13% uh, versus uh, 3%, including 1.3% uh, serious, grade 3, uh, none reported in the SOFIA study with trastuzumab. Uh, decrease in L, uh, left ventricular ejection fraction occurred at 1.9%. Kind of the standard criteria, hold criteria, a decrease in LVEF of more than 16% you hold, or a decrease to less than 50%, uh, along with an absolute decrease of 10% as a hold criteria. Ego, mucka, or echo or MUGA at baseline, and every three months, kind of what we uh, are used to. All right, so that's margituximab, new drug approved. Uh, more infusion reactions compared to trastuzumab, uh, theoretically uh, more effective, but uh, I don't see a reason to use this uh, now. Uh, we'll see, maybe in approval, or maybe in the, in the future. Uh, the next approval to talk about is Selenexor, uh, the onco-embodiment of the Britney Spears song, Toxic. So on December 18th, Selenoxor was approved. Um, now this is an expanded approval. Selenoxor has previously been approved for myeloma back in uh, 2019 in combination with DEX for relapse refractory multimyeloma after four lines of treatment. So penta refractory or penta line treatment, okay? So uh, that was Selenoxor's prior approval in myeloma. This expanded approval is in combination with bortezomib and dexamethasone for uh, relapsed refractory myeloma after at least one prior treatment. And I was shocked when I saw it was after one prior treatment with bortezomib index. Not two, not three, after one prior treatment. Okay. Um, so, and just as a reminder, SunXOR inhibits the nuclear export of proteins, um, including like oncogenic proteins and a whole bunch of other proteins. It's not very specific uh, for this. And, and that leads to some of the toxicity likely that we see with this drug. All right. So this is based on the Boston study, which was published in Lancet uh, in November of 2020. So about 400 patients were randomized to 
Salinex or Bortezomib and Dex, or Bortezomib Dex, and we'll get into the differences in the dosing of drugs in a second. But first, who are these 400 patients that have received uh, at least one line of treatment, but no more than three uh, lines of treatment? Uh, only 5% had received prior daratumumab, okay? They failed one line of treatment, uh, only 5% had dara. And they didn't get dara as their second line of treatment uh, in, in many of them, all right? And less than 50% had received an imid. Uh, like 43% had received thalidomide and, and 4% received lenalidomide. This is not the standard of care in America where most people are getting bortezomib, um, lenalidomide, and dex as, as their induction up front. And uh, I think maybe 30%, 30-40% had received a transplant, okay? Um, so these are folks that um, maybe it's for, you know, obviously a lot of these, this study was not done in, in, in uh, here in, in, uh, in the United States primarily, all right? So none of the patients that I'm seeing in clinic uh, are like the patients that were the majority of patients in this study, which means it's hard for me to take anything from the study and apply it to the patients I see in my practice, okay? And it's probably the same for your practice uh, if you're practicing here uh, in the States or, or probably even in, uh, in the, in the um, United Kingdom or uh, in the European Union. So, Selenexor dosing was 100 weekly. This is different from 80 twice a week, the prior approval in myeloma, which is 80 milligrams on days one and three. So, 100 weekly, weekly bortezomib for four weeks and then a week off. So these were five-week cycles. And the DEX was 20 on you know days one and two of each week. So Monday, Tuesday, uh, four weeks, uh, or every week, basically. Two days a week, every week. Now, the, the control arm was twice-weekly bortezomib, the standard 1, 4, 8, 11 of a three-week cycle. And then DEX, days one and two, four and five, 8, 11, 8, 9, 11, and 12, every three weeks, okay? Uh, confusing DEX regimen, a lot of folks don't do it. They just do 40 milligrams once a week or something like that, or just 40 milligrams with every dose of DEX, uh, just for the ease of sake. Uh, now, the primary endpoint here was progression-free survival, and numerically, it's impressive. The curves look impressive. The curves do continue to separate as time goes on. Uh, median progression-free survival was 13.9 months in the cell next arm versus 9.5 in uh, the control arm. Uh, hazard ratio was 0.7, uh, p-value 0.0075, compensation rate 0.53 to 0.93. So you know, kind of what you would expect, similar sort of, you know, PFS looks looks good, looks promising. It's not overall survival, it's PFS. It's patients in the control arm who would have definitely been better served to receive lenalidomide plus bortezomib and dex after their prior failing. And by the way, you know, most of these folks had already had prior bortezomib and they, you know, they didn't go on to receive carfilzomib in the second line. Study. So it's just bad study design. And as I mentioned before, it's a toxic drug. So here are the thrombocytopenia, 60% versus 27%. Uh, worse for Selenex or 39% grade 3 thrombocytopenia. And you might say, we're used to hematologic toxicity in hemoc, who cares? Uh, all right, decrease in appetite, 35% versus 5%. Ugh, that doesn't sound fun. Vomiting, 21% versus 4%. Weight loss, 26% versus 12%. Uh, cataracts, 22% versus 6%. Uh, all these things are worse in the Selenex arm. The only toxicity that was worse in the control arm was peripheral neuropathy, and again, they got twice-weekly bortezomib, and this was sub-Q bortezomib. It wasn't IV bortezomib, which would have a higher risk of peripheral neuropathy. So again, uh, you know, I just spent like, I don't know, 10 minutes going over margituximab in, in a cell and XOR study, and probably should not be seeing these used in, in practice. Uh, the next approval you might see, and I'm, I think you will see on December 18th, 
big day in the FDA. Uh, they approved uh, uh, Relugolix, brand name uh, Orgovix, beginning O-R, because this is an oral GnRH antagonist, the first oral uh, GnRH targeting drug. Uh, it's the second GnRH antagonist that's approved after uh, Degarelix, which is uh, parenteral. Now, this is based on the uh, approval, it's based on the HERO study, which compared uh, Relugolix to Luprolot, a GnRH uh, agonist. The primary endpoint was castration rate, defined as a uh, typical definition of testosterone less than 50 nanograms per deciliter. Uh, and that was achieved in 96.7% and the Relugolix versus 89% in Luprolide. That Luprolide number looks low to me, and that's because they, they appear to use this definition that it had to be below 50 from day 29 all the way through week 48 of the study. And some of the folks probably didn't get there right away with the Luprolide because you do see that tumor or that testosterone surge and maybe can take a while to get down to, to, to castration levels, but eventually they'll get there. If you look at the curves, Long-term, there doesn't seem to be any difference in, in, in medical castration rate. And that was a non-inferiority endpoint, okay? Uh, 900 patients randomized 2 to 1. It was a mix of castration-sensitive and, and hormone uh, refractory or hormonal-sensitive, hormone-refractory prostate cancer patients. Um, you know, the oral relugolix, it's got a half-life of 25 uh, hours. So pretty quick onset, pretty quick offset. You do see a very rapid decrease in testosterone. If you stop the drug, you see a rapid rise in testosterone, which uh, the authors of this study, which was published in June in the New England Journal of Medicine, argue would uh, lends itself favorably to intermittent um, dosing of androgen deprivation therapy, which surely is probably going to have quality of life benefits, but but may, uh, may impact uh, efficacy in treating uh, especially hormone refractory metastatic uh, prostate cancer patients. All right, so the big thing to take away from this, it's an oral drug, right? So people like that. Uh, you worry a little bit about taking an oral drug every day that they need to take uh, versus coming every three, uh, three months for a Luprolide injection. But I think the big thing to focus on that we need follow-up on and to look for in the future is there is a hint, there is a signal that maybe Relugolix is safer from a cardiovascular uh, endpoint. And when they look at uh, MACE's major, MACE, major um, adverse cardiovascular events, which is defined as non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or death from any cause, uh, the numbers were 2.9% with Relugolix versus 6.2%, so the rate was cut in half, uh, and the benefit was, was uh, very pronounced in the patients who had a prior history of a major adverse cardiovascular event where the rate was 3.6% with Relugolix versus 17.8% with Luprolide. Now, there are only 45 patients uh, in the Luprolide arm that had a prior uh, uh, adverse cardiovascular event. So the numbers are small, but that's, that's a big signal that's worth following up on. What the study does not report that I could read, nor the supplementary appendix, is of those numbers of major events, how many were MI, how many were stroke, and how many were death from any cause. This is not uh, a study that is um, designed to assess progression-free survival or death from prostate cancer. So people could have died from prostate cancer, because some of them had advanced prostate cancer, um, and that gets counted as a major adverse cardiovascular event when it's a major oncology <laughs> event. Uh, so uh, it's cer certainly promising something that uh, I have my eyes on and my ears out to, to look and listen for more data about this that I'm, I'm eager to see.
Uh, it's an oral drug, 360 milligrams uh, as a loading dose on day one, then 120 thereafter. It comes in 120 milligram dosage form. Uh, there is quite a bit of diarrhea, like 12% diarrhea when you start. It seems to be self-limiting and, and mild to moderate. Didn't cause anybody to stop the drug in the study. Uh, there's an odd warning precaution for QT prolongation. It says it may cause QT prolongation. And it's weird that there's a warning precaution about that because the, pr the clinical study, um, and this is just a single dose of Relugalix, didn't show any QT prolongation. So we know after one dose there's no QT prolongation, but people will be taking this for likely the duration of their disease. Um, uh, so, well, you know, why would they put that as a warning precaution if they didn't see it in a single dose study? It makes me think that, hmm, maybe there's, you know, rubbing the chin emoji, there's something else out there they didn't put uh, in the PI. It's a 3-4 substrate, but does not appear to have drug interactions with 3-4 inhibitors or inducers. It seems to be more dependent on peak-like protein inhibitors and inducers uh, based on reading the PI. Um, you know, erythromycin, which is a 3-4 substrate, and peak-like protein inhibitor, big increase in AUC. Same thing, rifampin, with regards to inducing 3-4 and inducing peak-like protein. Uh, but they do state in the PI that enzalutamide, which is a strong 3-4 inducer on the same level as rifampin and fentone, did not change the concentrations significantly uh, with uh, really gallic. So that's that's useful information in the PI. So it's going to be an interesting option because it's oral and it's going to be adopted by a lot of the urologists who are the ones often starting folks on androgen deprivation therapy, at least regionally where I am, before they get to medical oncology. Uh, and those folks may not be as familiar with specialty pharmacy as, as medical oncology. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see. Self-limiting diarrhea. We'll see if uh, it's really safer from a cardiovascular standpoint. Um, uh, so, yeah, you know, interesting interesting, uh, interesting drug. Probably the, the most interesting thing that I'll talk about today. Uh, and the last approval I have to talk about, again, December 18th, the FDA approved OCBertinib for the adjuvant treatment of EGFR um, mutated non-small cell lung cancer based on ADARA, which we've discussed ad nauseum and on other podcasts. I'm not going to say anything else about this approval. You probably know how I feel. Uh, I would encourage everyone, if you haven't done so, there is an excellent commentary uh, that I shared on, on Twitter back in early December. This was written by uh, Gawali and West in JCO, and it's called Lessons from Adara, uh, published December 4th, uh, 2020 in JCO. It's excellent reviewing uh, or, or talking about uh, the inherent issues with... Um, uh, the flaws of the study, uh, the cost concerns, the fact that if we're doing adjuvant treatment, are we curing people, which we don't know, and the history. This is not the first time people have tried adjuvant TKIs in, in a disease setting like this. Uh, so it's certainly worth a read. Uh, and just for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to rehash what they say because they said it really well. I've said some of the same things on prior pods. So that's running through the month of December. Uh, I hope some of you enjoyed uh, the the nerdy oncology pharmacy crossword I sent out. I got a couple others that I'll, I'll, I'll maybe put out on, on holidays going forward. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetna. Follow the podcast uh, on Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.